Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want to uh, share with us uh, briefly this evening on the subject that I'm going to entitle a life after death decision. Now, many of you who attend here regularly, you're used to sermon cards. Well, today we don't have sermon cards, although we will have them for you this Sunday. But you can follow along with us there on your phone or on your whatever device. If you just click on Version, the Bible app, if you click on events, dwelling place, if your location services is on, we'll be the first church that will pop up on your phone and you'll see every note there if you want to follow along. But I want to share with you this message, a life after death decision. Um, notice I said a life, not a life or death decision, although a life or de- death decision is important, but a life after death decision. Ha- have anybody in here ever had what you would call a life or death experience? Like you felt like, I mean, literally I'm on the verge, like this is crazy what's about to happen. I feel like it's over, I'm going to die, right? Well, for me, the, the craziest thing, you know, I guess where my life flashed before my eyes, I was probably 11 years old and my parents for Christmas bought me a Suzuki ATV, an 80 ATV. It was a little Suzuki, a yellow four-wheeler. And uh, I got it on Christmas and the very next day we go down to High Point, Georgia, where my aunt and uncle lived at the time. And they lived in the woods and they had all kinds of ridges and, and all kinds of hills around them. And what we did not know is that the Suzuki that I actually owned at that point or had been given to me as a gift did not have rear brakes on it, okay? And so what would happen is you would pull on the handlebars and they would just easily go down. And so you had one little small break at your foot that you were trying to slow this you know, all-terrain vehicle down. And so we get out there. Again, this is the first time I'm like 11 years old on this, and I go up this huge mountain. And I tell my dad on the way back down, it might be good if you get out in front of me so that way, you know what, if something happens, I'm able to kind of bump into the back of you. And he's like, no, you're going to be all right. And so I grab that. Thankfully, I had a helmet on, and I start going down the hill. Now, it's a curvy hill through the middle of some hardwoods. And as I'm going down this very steep hill, I realize that inside this this path, so to speak, is a rut. And one of my tires gets in the rut, so now I'm riding the rut out and I'm picking up speed to which I think, okay, no big deal. I'll just start pulling on the handle brakes. Well, when I pull on the handle brakes, nothing happens. Well, at this point, 10 seconds turns into 20 seconds, and now I'm moving at a rapid pace. And I know, have you ever been those moments? The life or death, I mean, it's like life is flashing before my eyes. I'm thinking, I'm done. I'm about to run into a tree. I'm about to crack my head open. It's over. It's finished. And the four-wheeler is picking up speed till finally I moved off of the path. My left handlebar hit a huge oak tree. I went completely over the front. I land, and when I land, I look up, and here comes a four-wheeler. And the four-wheeler comes and lands right on top of me, takes my helmet, splits it from the front all the way to the back, breaks it in half, literally shatters my patella, my right leg, and I'm like running on adrenaline to my dad saying like, what in the world has happened to me, right? That was a, that was a life or death experience for me. I mean, it was really, really, really scary at the time. And maybe you're here this evening and you've not had a life or death experience, but today what we're going to see in the scriptures is two men literally have or are on the verge of death. 
And the decision they make at this moment in their life is going to determine where they're going to spend the rest of eternity. I want to, this evening, examine the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus on Calvary that Friday. And I want us to ask the question of what category of thief or category of person do we classify ourselves as? Because everybody in here and all those that are streaming live tonight, you find yourself in one of two categories. If you got a Bible, let's look in Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read. We're going to begin in verse 32 and following. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. Two others, criminals, who also led away to be executed with him. And when they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and they cast lots. The Bible says the people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Well, let him save himself now. This is God's Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. This is the Messiah of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him. And they came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself? Verse 37. The Bible says an inscription was above him on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults, yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Why don't you save yourself and save us? But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you're undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And this man, this criminal, looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him from the cross, Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. One man is going to die for his sin because he dies in his sin, and he will pay the price for his sin, which is death. The other man will put his faith in a sinless Savior and know he's not perfect, but he knows one who is. And therefore, he can die as a saint, not a sinner. Two categories right here on Good Friday. One is a dying sinner, the other a dying saint. Let's talk about the first one first. A dying sinner. A dying sinner. Now, this guy will somewhat confuse us when we look at the text. As we start examining the text, it's kind of crazy because this is a man who catches this church, has the right words spoken at the right time, spoken to the right person with the wrong motivation, and he'll spend eternity in the wrong place. He's a confusing character. Right words, right time, right person, right speech, wrong heart. Spends eternity in the wrong place. Listen, if I really am honest with myself in this text, if it happened to him, I got a sneaky suspicion that maybe some of you here today could be the same ballpark. If it happened to him, it can happen to us. And some of you would say, well, you know what, that's me. But, but he does get two things right. Let's look at what he gets right. First of all, look what this dying sinner gets right. Number one, he recognizes Jesus' identity. In verse 39, look what he says in verse 39. He declares to him that this man, this inscription, the one of the criminals said, look, he's yelling insults at him. He said, aren't you the Messiah? So he got that right. Aren't you the Messiah? Now that's the right word. The word Messiah, by the way, church, means anointed one, or it also means chosen one, or it means Christ. Now listen, Jesus' name is not Jesus Christ, as if like my name is Craig Mosgrove. You know, it's much more like, it would be like saying Craig the pastor. It would be like saying Mike the mechanic. Jesus, Yeshua, the one who saves, is 
Hamashiach, Messiah. That's his title. He's the one who is chosen. He is the one who is anointed of God. And so this criminal, though he's a dying sinner, gets that part right. Here's the second thing he gets right. Notice he not only recognizes Jesus' identity, but he reveals the mission of Jesus. He looks and says, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you going to save yourself and save us? He knew that Jesus had come to save us. You say, Craig, how does he know that? He knows that because this criminal knows Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a crucifixion passage written thousands of years before the Romans had even invented the Roman torture tool called crucifixion. And yet David's trying to write thousands of years earlier saying, why can I say, okay, Holy Spirit, you're telling me that he's going to be pierced, that nails are, what is it, don't even make sense. Nails are going to pierce his hands, nails are going to pierce his feet. And this criminal knows this text, Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8. The prophetic psalm by David about the Messiah. Notice what Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8 says. They're going to show it on the screens. I think they are. Psalm 22, 7 and 8. They're not. Okay, Psalm 22 clearly communicates, there you'll see it in in front of you, that the Messiah was one whose mouth was dried up like a potsherd, the scripture said. All his bones were glaring, and literally the scripture says that his heart melted like wax. So he knows that if you are Messiah, that you've come to save, which God has promised to do. But here's the problem, church. The problem is this man rejects salvation. That's number three. He rejects salvation. How do I know that? It's from this one little line. The Bible says he yells at Jesus. He yells at Jesus. Uh, uh, Maybe your Bible translation says he railed against Jesus and said these things to the master. That Greek word there we find in Luke 23 is the word blasphemeo. It's from where we get the English word blaspheme. In other words, it means to insult, to verbally abuse. We could say it to hurl insults insults at an individual. Now listen, I'm not interested in, in uh, this, this man essentially is saying, I'm not interested in you saving the world or even saving us from sin. I want you to save me personally. I want you to get me off the cross, do a trick. Let's get down off this cross. I want you to supernaturally pull out, so to speak, the nails from my hands and let us get down off of this cross and get rid of the Romans. Now, here's what this guy shows us. Feel the way to this church. This is what this guy shows us. You can be at the right place You can be talking to the right person and you can even say and recite the right words and still be wrong and still spend eternity in hell. You can say the right words at the right time to the right person and yet still be wrong when you say it. This man we know does not have a change of heart because he's mocking Jesus and he's insulting Jesus so he dies in his sin. Listen, church, you must understand this. Whether you've come for maybe the first time in a long time or maybe you're here and you're a regular tender, you've got to understand something. That if you die in your sin, meaning you have no sacrifice to pay for your sin, you're going to die for your sin because someone must pay the price for that sin. And if you die for your sin, then you die in the sin and the way Wages of sin is death. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is what? It's death. Now, it doesn't mean physical death, although in a sense it does. It means spiritual death. You say, Craig, how do you know that? Remember when God told Adam and Eve? He said that you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do so, you will surely die. Did they eat from the tree? Yes. Did they die? No. Is God a liar? No. What's God saying? You're going to live the rest of your existence alive, but in a comatose, physically alive, but in a spiritual death-like existence. 
Does anybody remember your spiritual death-like existence when you were lost? I remember it very well. I remember it very keenly. The spiritual death-like, literally moping, uh, zombie-like existence apart from Jesus, separated from God, alienated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So this man has the right words, says the right thing to the right person, and he spends eternity in the wrong place. Number two, we see a dying sinner. We now see a dying saint. The dying saint. Why do I say saint? Because I want to show you this man is a saint. Saint is another word for believer. And I want to show you that this man literally is, is a dying saint, but not based on anything he does, but as we'll see on everything Jesus is about to do. Let's look at the text again. Verse 40, 41, and 42. Notice what the text says. This is the dying saint. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God? Since you're undergoing the same punishment, verse 41, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we do, but this man's done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Look, one man is rejecting the Messiah, and one man is what? He's repenting. He's, he's broken. You have to understand, this is not Jesus at his best. Okay, this is not Jesus at his best. Like if you've come thinking that this is a Messiah conquering king, this is the, not the best image. Imagine this. Jesus has just been punched in the face by the high priest. He now has embedded spit in his beard from the Sadducees that have spit on him. He has a crown of thorns that are pushed into his skull. He's got blood running down his beard. He has strips of a whip that are on his back. He has his back filleted open. He has nails in his wrist. He has nails in his feet. He is in a pitiful state. He is in a, a, an ugly sight. And yet this criminal, in the midst of that, recognizes exactly who Jesus is and exactly what Jesus came to do. See this, you'll love this. You ready? You ready? In two sentences, a dying saint gives to us the gospel. In two sentences, he gives the entire gospel. Did you catch that? Look at it. Number one, he identifies Jesus as the king. How do I know that? He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's already recognizing there on the cross that this man in the middle, he's actually a king. Number two, he acknowledges Jesus as savior. You say, Craig, where do you get that? He says, Jesus, you have done nothing wrong. You are completely innocent, and we have. What is he realizing? He's realizing that Jesus can save him from his sin. I can't, we can't, but Jesus can. Number three, he distinguished Jesus as innocent. He says, you've done nothing wrong. You're blameless. You have no transgression. You're innocent. Number four, he affirms Jesus' authority. He calls him Lord. He calls him Lord. The word Lord symbolizes authority. It's a, a, a term, so to speak, of providence, of him being a master and this criminal being under him. Number five, he recognizes his own destination. This is what's so amazing about this text. He knows where he's headed. He knows where he's headed. He realizes there's life after death. In America today, we're getting this re-kind of influx of annihilationism and in the sense that we are to die and then we just cease to exist. I hear it all the time. I'm even hearing it on the lips of Christians. This man, even a sinner, now reaching out to Jesus is saying, I know I'm going to spend eternity somewhere. I know I'm not just going to exist or cease to exist. I want to go somewhere and I don't want to be separated from you, God. I don't want to be separated from you. And then sixthly and finally, he confesses that he's a sinner. 
He confesses. Did you catch that? Look, he said, we're being punished justly. We got what we deserve, but this man, he's done nothing wrong. What does this man realize? This man realizes that Jesus is sinless. He is sinful, and he realizes he can't save himself. Notice what he doesn't do on the cross. He doesn't appeal to the Romans to help him. He doesn't cry out to the guards to get him down. He doesn't look to anybody else. He doesn't cry out. He cries out to Jesus who alone can save him from his predicament. Now, it's bigger than a physical predicament. He wants, of course, Jesus to save him spiritually. He's calling out for a spiritual saving. So look, church, we see two men essentially saying in a similar way the same right words with two totally different destinations. Which leads me to the third and final point. Two different outcomes. Two different outcomes. Look at verse 42. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, what does he say? Tomorrow, one day by and by in the future. No, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Look, church, what's interesting to us is Jesus gives us three affirmations, or if I can say it this way, confirmations of what happens the moment we cry out to him and he responds. He shows us right here in his death what happens the moment we cry out for the Lord to save us. Notice three things. Number one, the urgency of Jesus' response. Notice how urgent the Lord is. He said, you'll be with me when? You'll be with me in paradise when? Tomorrow? In the future? No, you'll be with me in paradise today. Church, isn't that encouraging on Good Friday? Isn't that encouraging? Jesus said today, hey, Jesus, I want to be saved. Uh, We'll talk about that in the future. Uh, Jesus, I want to be saved. Uh, We'll bring that up a couple years from now. Let me think about it. No, he says today. He doesn't hold his past against the man. He doesn't hold his transgressions against the man. He doesn't tell him all that you've ever done. He doesn't say, tell me all that you've ever done. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Secondly, we see the assurance of Jesus' response. He says, you will be. That's an affirmative. You will be with me in paradise. You can take that to the bank, church. It is guaranteed you will be with me today. And thirdly and finally, we see the destination. Notice this is interesting. He said, you'll be with me where? In paradise. Paradise today. Look, church, when you die, what Jesus is essentially saying is you will be with me. When you die in a few hours, you're going to be with me. Wow. Aren't you encouraged that we don't have to wait to be with Jesus after death. Jesus shows us that there is no waiting period. There's no holding place. I was talking to somebody last night after growth phases about purgatory. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Listen, there's no limbo. If you've grown up in the Catholic church, with all due respect, I want to tell you, purgatory and limbo are non-existent. You may have been told that limbo's existence, limbo was created by the Catholic church to, to cause a place or a holding cell for infants who were not yet baptized who died. And they went for a time of testing, a time where God's providence and grace would touch them. Let me tell you something. There is no place you go as a believer after death except to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you go. There is no soul sleep. You listen to me. There's no annihilationism. There's no you go and wait in another area. You know, go through another test. No, this God knows that when he dies, he just changes addresses. You don't cease to exist when you die. No, no, no. Every person in here after death, you will either be translated to be with the Lord or you will be relegated to live separate from Christ in hell. 
There's no middle ground. There's no middle place. There's no right in the fence. There's no period of testing. The word paradise is so interesting. It's a Greek word. Do you know where we get this word? It's the same word in Genesis for garden of Eden. It's the same word used in Revelation 22 when we find this garden in heaven. It's pretty amazing. I love the vivid imagery. It's garden in the Bible. Now, where's the first time we see the message of a garden? The Garden of Eden in Genesis. Where is Jesus buried? We won't talk about that today, but he's buried in the tomb in a garden. Jesus' life are bookended by gardens. The Bible opens with a garden. It ends with a garden. In other words, the Bible starts with a garden, ends with a garden. So you have this idea of Eden. What he says is, you're going to go to a place of perfection. He's saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring you back to a pre-fall state. Now, some of you, you're going ding, 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 ding. I know what paradise means because the church about 200 years after Jesus called this place the place of Abraham's bosom. In other words, this is the place they went as the holding place before they would be sent to heaven. Understand that. I'm not going to argue with that. But the language here is Eden. It's a, it's a language of a garden. It's the language of Scripture. But here's the challenge. Come on, Maddie. Here's the challenge. And this is what baffles a lot of Christians. The reason this passage baffles a lot of Christians is because, especially those of us who've been maybe a Christian a while, is because we can be like the older brother and we come with conviction for the younger brother who comes later in life to God's grace. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? I've been serving you forever, God. I've been faithfully serving you. What about this joker on the cross? What's about this joker? He's going and blew your money, right? The older brother, he's blew your money, and now you're going to show and love him? And It's easy if we're not careful to become critical like that. The longer we serve Jesus, we become critical of the one who comes to grace late in life. It's easy for us to adopt the attitude of of the, the religious leaders to the tax collector. You remember the religious leader looking at the publican, and he said, I thank God that I'm not like you tax collectors. I thank God, right? I thank God I'm not like this sinner. I thank God I fast every week. I don't just come to church on Easter. I don't just come to church on Good Friday. I come to church all the time. I'm in a connect group. I go to growth phases. I'm engaged. What this text shows us, church, is it shows us that you can't put a gauge on grace. Like, who are we to tell God how to disseminate grace? To give away grace. Those of us that are desperately in need of grace, we should never be telling anybody else whether or not they get grace or don't get grace. And it also shows us that when you have received grace and whether you've received grace early in life or you've received grace late in life, it's still amazing grace. There's a young man who got born again in this, in this gathering on Sunday morning. Young man. Parents and missionaries have been away from the Lord. I asked him to come and share his story tonight, and he was unable to. He'll be here with us this Sunday. Radically born again, God opened up his eyes. Whether you come to grace at 82 years old or 18 years old, it's still grace. None of us deserved it anyways. It's still grace, which is why you and I should be dealers of grace. We should be hope dealers. We should be grace dealers, giving grace to people. See, listen. It's easy for us in Bible Belt, Atlanta, Bible Belt, America, to think we are Christians. Why? Because we go to church. I went to Sunday school, Pastor Craig. I went to VBS. I went to Royal Rangers. I went to, I went to kids camp. And some of you listen to me. 
Maybe right now you've realized that you've said the right word. Some of you have come to the right place. You've approached the right person, and yet you still have the wrong heart condition. See, that's what's the difference between the two thieves is the heart condition. Both cried out to the Lord. One did it from a posture of humility and repentance, and one did it from a posture of arrogance and pride. Let me ask you right now. We're about to close. I want to ask you to examine your own life. Where are you at this evening with the Lord? Where are you at this evening? If we're honest with this text, we can see talk is cheap, right? Talk is cheap. We could have said prayers in the past. We may have even said and been baptized. You have may have even said the sinner's prayer in the past. Church, can I meddle just for a moment? Some of you say, you've been meddling the whole time. I know it. Just stick with me. Let me meddle to conclude. Did you know the reality is that the sinner's prayer is not even in the Bible? There's no such thing as a sinner's prayer, young people, even children in the Bible. I tell my kids this repeatedly. There's no such thing. No such thing as a sinner's prayer. Can't find the sinner's prayer in the Bible. Do you know that Jesus actually never said, ask me into your heart? Jesus never said that. He said, never said, ask me into your heart. People say, well, why are you saying this? You got something against people? No, I don't have an ax to grind. Listen, I'm not trying to, I don't got one person in mind. I'm just telling you, the reality is if we're going to be a church based on the Bible, then we've got to do what the Bible says. We got to do what the Bible says. And Jesus said, never say a sinner's prayer. Why? Because the problem with a sinner's prayer is that you and I can rest our eternal destination on some manufactured sentences that someone told us to repeat. And if we said it at the right time and somebody patted us on the back, because I did it. I was there in church as a kid. And you patted us on the right back and sent us off into another room. Then all of a sudden, we are saved. And somebody says to us, don't let anyone tell you any different, son. You're saved. Friends, what I share with you today is what saves us is not manufactured sentences. It's trust in a sinless Savior. It's a sinless Savior who gave his life for us. See, here's the problem with sinner's prayer. Can a person be saved through a prayer? Of course, they have. Absolutely. But friends, what I've found in church is a lot of people hold on to some empty words thinking they're saved when they're not. And here's how I know. You know how I know they're not saved? Jesus said if we have made this decision and we get the privilege of living after that decision, our life will build the case of whether or not we're really saved or not. Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruits. Jesus never said, say a sinner's prayer. Paul never said, say a sinner's prayer. John never said, say a sinner's prayer. James never said, say a sinner's prayer. Here's what they said. Repent and believe. They said, repent for your wrongdoing and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. What must I do to be saved? Repent and believe. You know what Jesus would say today? Go and sin no more. Repent, believe, and go and sin no more. How are you living? I've changed the way I talk to people. I really have. I was telling one of our leaders this week, I used to always say to people, what has God been doing in your life? Here's the question I ask now. What is God doing in your life today? Not what has God done in the past. I'm talking about right now, I want to ask you, what is Jesus doing in your life this Good Friday? What's he doing today? Today. Parents come up to me a lot and they, I was a youth pastor 12 years. They say, what do you think, pastor? You think my son's saved? You think my daughter's saved? Man, I got this all the time. Here's the thing. They said a prayer at 10 years old. And they went to church They've been out of church about 20 years. I hadn't seen them about 20 years. But I know they were with that pastor. I got it on VHS tape. 
they were in that baptistry and they got baptized. Nah, they live like the world, but, but do you believe they're saved? What do you think, Pastor Craig? And here's what I always say. Same thing I'd say to you today if you asked me. I'd say, I don't know. But time will tell. Time will tell. A faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the start. It wasn't a true conversion. It wasn't a true conversion. It wasn't a heart change. George Whitfield, I love it. Come on, band. He preached this massive crusade one day. You remember George Whitfield, and he was preaching this massive crusade. And he preached, and hundreds of people came down to the altar. He got done. King lead him in a sinner's prayer, leading him in a moment of confession to the Lord. And he walks off the stage. He's going into the back. And a preacher comes up to him and says, George, George, how, how many people you think got saved tonight? How many, how many people you think got saved at the revival? And George looked at that man in the eyes. I'll never forget this. George said, we'll have to wait six months and then we'll see. You can't know if somebody's saved the day that they say they're saved. You can only know that they're saved because it's not one-time decision. This is a lifestyle we spend living for Jesus. So as you look at this cross today, these two crosses, which criminal are you? Which criminal are you? Which criminal? In just a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table. Now listen to me very carefully. Before we go to the Lord's table, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, my, not my words, Paul's words. You cannot do what we're about to do if you're an unbeliever. If you do so, the scripture says you will drink judgment on yourself. He said some have fallen sick and even died. That's what he said. It's not my words, it's God's words. You can't go to the table of the Lord when you're not a believer. You can't partake of the body and blood of the Lord when you're not a believer. But the good news is that the offer of grace is for every life here. For some of you, you've gone through many procedures in life, surgical procedures. If you've undergone many operations, what happens is you go and meet with the surgeon before the operation and they walk you through what they're planning to do. And they go through it all and they're, they say what it involved and the various risks and the various benefits. And at the end of the conversation, here's what you got to do. You got to sign a contract. You got to sign on the dotted line. And you have to sign your consent. And when you sign, look at this. When you sign the dotted line, you are saying, I trust in the surgeon. You're not saying, I believe the surgeon exists. You're not saying, my mom and dad told me all about the surgeon. You're not saying, I believe you're a surgeon. You are who you say you are. No, no, no. You are signing over the control of your life to a man or a woman for those next few hours. That's exactly what Jesus is asking tonight. Would you let me be the surgeon? Would you sign over your life? Would you sign over your control? Look at this. Come on, bring the table of elements. Watch this church. team is going to come forward and on the Lord's day when we come to the Lord's table I want you to hear what Jesus says to you today I want you to listen to what Jesus says just so you'll know you come to the table and Jesus says to you tonight, look right here, church. He says, take and eat. 
whoa, 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 what's happening there? The last time I heard those words, it didn't turn out so well. She took and she ate. Genesis. <laughs> Look what Jesus is doing that night. <laughs> he said, hey, Satan, watch this. Watch this. Disciples. Last time someone took and ate, they reaped judgment on their life. But, 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 but it seems so... It seems so insignificant to take a fruit from a tree and eat the fruit, but yet it's so powerful a sin. It took God sending His Son to live a sinless life and dying on the cross for the words take and eat to actually be salvation words now. He takes the very words that Satan uses against God's original people and He transforms them through His death and resurrection. It says take This is my body, which is broken for you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.